Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast. And if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, uh, first of all, hi, my name is David, I'm a filmmaker. And usually when I start the podcast, I say the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring professional journeys. But the reality is, as a filmmaker, the reason that I started this podcast in the first place was not just because I wanted to talk to people with inspiring professional journeys, but specifically filmmakers with some amazing breakout stories. So for instance, someone like Wes Ball, who directed a short film called Ruin, which inspired Hollywood and uh, gave him the chance to direct his first feature, which was The Maze Runner. And then he ended up directing the whole Maze Runner trilogy. And he's a really kind of hot up and coming director now. And here we are, episode 24 of the Post Post Podcast, and I'm your host, David Gidali, and our guest today is someone who also had a quite an incredible breakout story, RJ Collins. He, together with a bunch of friends, straight out of film school, directed a spec commercial for Tesla, which went viral after it was tweeted by Elon Musk himself, and turned the four of them and the company that they founded, Everdream, into a branded content powerhouse for a few years. That was a while back, and since then, after directing numerous commercials, he went back to narrative storytelling, and he directed a series called Simi Valley for Black Pills, and he's now working on a new series called Black Friday. But the reason we recorded this episode is because he has a new Kickstarter campaign for a short film called Ready or Not. It's a science fiction. I think it's great. It's about a girl who's trying to go back in time and prevent her dad's death. I've seen other shorts that he did. He's a really talented filmmaker, and I really support him. And I highly recommend you guys go support his Kickstarter. Any amount will help, just like many of you uh, who are aspiring directors and are working on your own passion projects, hoping that they will open doors for you. And this is what I hope that this uh, short film is going to do for him. So he can definitely use any help that you guys can give. He sure convinced me that he's a very talented filmmaker and has his heart in the right place. And uh, that's it. Let's roll into the episode. And without further ado, I give you episode 24 of the Post Post Podcast. Let's just dive into it. Yeah. Well, yeah. first, I'd like to I'd like you to kind of give a brief introduction of yourself. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a writer director. That basically, long story short, I went to Dodge College, which is the film school down at Chapman University. Graduated. Which is is that in L.A. It's or in Orange. Orange. So, okay. It's actually in the town of Orange in Orange County. Oh, interesting. Um, and graduated from there kind of accidentally got into advertising um, with uh, a spec commercial made for Tesla that kind of exploded. Right. And spent several years in advertising and since have kind of transitioned or in, in the process of transitioning into film and TV in more of a full-time capacity. And how um, many uh, advertisements or how many spots did you get to direct, do you know? Well, I've definitely directed well into the, the double digits of, of big, you know, 10, 15, 20 spots. But while I was at Everdream, which was the company that was formed after the Tesla spec, yeah. I was a part of probably 100 plus spots while right. we were at that collective. Because there was 13 directors gotcha. that were all very involved in one another's pr productions. Okay, well, we'll dive into that company because it's very, <laughs> very interesting. Um, and um, now you're working on a short film that's, yes. uh, there's a Kickstarter campaign that's uh, yeah. active right now. Um, how, what's, what's uh, the deadline for it? Is it yeah, we are 10, today is, we're 10 days left in the campaign. We're almost 50% funded 
and um, the short film was called Ready or Not, and it's about a young girl who, after the death of her father, complete completes his time machine to go back in time and prevent his death. Okay, so it's a science fiction. It, it uh, is, yeah. Short film. Is there like a larger project that this is sort of the proof of concept for? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the the short is specifically engineered to be a proof of concept for a feature. Um, and we have a pretty awesome team that we've assembled. John Tree Fry, who's the producer, who was attached to some shorts that did pretty well on the festival circuit, like Souls of Totality, mm -hmm. um, which specifically with that film, they're able to take that short, do the festival circuit, and then they set that short up at automatic as a feature film, which they're in development with right now. And so John's- wow, That's perfect, uh, the perfect person to- Yeah, kind exactly. Of, uh, take the short to the, next, uh, to the next level. And that's cool that you have him kind of on board this early. Yeah, we, uh, Ready or Not actually is a direct result of another film that John and I were trying to make together that was, I've always been a huge fan of Iron Giant as yeah. a little kid and revisiting it, it's just always affected me. And the interesting thing about Iron Giant is when I think, at least for me, as a young kid, the ending really didn't, nothing went beyond just how scary the ending was and the robot sacrificing his life. And then as you get yeah. older, you realize the real kind of political implications and the right. economic implications of what Brad Bird is really trying to say with the movie. And I think for me, there was another film I was trying to make called Remote Glove, which was uh, very much inspired by kind of if Iron Giant and Children of Men had a, a baby. Oh, wow. That's, that's what, crazy. Uh, and just to clarify, because this is a podcast and yeah, there's yeah. no visuals attached, uh, <laughs> you, I, the Iron Giant is a famous animated film, yes, but you're, yes. you're a live action director. So I'm, imagine, yep. I'm assuming that uh, Remote Glove was supposed to be a, a live action it film? It was live action, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so are your commercials, and so is uh, your short film that you're uh, about to uh, to direct. Yep, yep, um, everything is live action. And I have dabbled in different things, stop motion and animation, but whenever I'm doing those projects, it's always in collaboration with an animator or uh, right. someone yeah. of that. Of course. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, we'll dive into all of those things. I mean, they're uh, really exciting. And... Um, this uh, Kickstarter, one of the things that you're doing as part of the Kickstarter campaign is targeting people on Facebook and sending them <laughs> sort of like, uh, hey. Uh, yeah, spamming them, spamming basically. Them. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I was just uh, kind of, I, I was on Facebook and I got your, uh, uh, I got your uh, uh, message about it. And, yeah. and uh, my initial kind of almost got reaction was to, well, I was just to about to me. like to, to not to block you, but just to sort of very politely not not respond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no polite non-response, but basically uh, kind of move on with my life. Um, <laughs> but uh, something about the pitch just made me think, and you know, I, I have my own short that is doing festivals now, and which you, yeah. which uh, uh, I've spoke about before in this podcast, and, which we should uh, talk about, by the way, with pleasure. We can talk about anything you want, yeah, uh, except for. My short, no, we can talk about. <laughs> uh, and um, and my, uh, I guess I was kind of uh, thinking to myself, hey, someone that's trying to do the same thing that yeah, I'm just trying yeah. to do, and is trying to get my help in doing it, and like, why should I help someone who's basically competing again? Not competing, but you know, like. Sure. Um, and I don't know. I was just like thinking to myself, you know, let's uh, answer the the call and I, you know, I basically said, oh, I, 
I just had a baby and I'm probably not like going to be able to spend uh, some, you know, I can't really afford to spend any money, but I have a podcast and uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see what you, and ironically, yeah. just earlier that same week, I was talking to, to a friend of mine about shorts that were kind of led to other work and yeah. things like that. And he brought up the a spec Tesla commercial that uh, blew up, that went viral, that uh, it went viral after Elon Musk retweeted it, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And um, it was like, see, those guys did that. And Elon Musk retweeted it. And then they got a ton of work and they did a lot of commercials. And, uh, you know, that's this is what you should do. And I'm like, well, you know, okay. That's crazy. It's, it's so wild to me that people even know about it because even though it, it, it went quote unquote viral and, and a lot of the coverage it got was specifically advertising coverage ad age and ad week, it still blows my mind when filmmakers know about the narrative because it, it still feels like this kind of esoteric right thing that thing that happened that only me and these, you know, fifteen or twenty people that were a part of and at the time when we made the the Tesla thing, there was only four directors at at Everdream, which were the all the original founders. Gotcha. And um, I don't know if now is a good time to dive into to the Yeah, the, for sure. Let me just close the door. Oh yeah. Do like uh, a quick All right, we're back. So yeah, let's cool. dive into uh, like how did you guys uh, start Everdream and uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how did that Tesla spec kind of came about? What's uh, what's the story behind it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the the story is mainly that there myself and three other directors graduated from Chapman and we're all three of us were living together at the time and right after graduation and we were all making our money through other hustles by not directing you know okay. like visual yeah. effects or shooting but and we were all just kind of frustrated what were you what were you doing like what was your other I, hustle yeah i was producing and i was assistant directing gotcha um and I was essentially just doing anything I could to make money and be as close to production as possible. How old were you? Like 22? Or I, yeah, I was straight out of college. Gotcha. I was 22. So I was kind of, and I was also PAing. Hmm. So I was really lucky to get in with a group of PAs and did a string of big movies. I PAed on The Hangover 3 and oh, nice. wow. Oz the Great and Powerful. And um, there's one other movie I'm I'm completely forgetting. But so while that was happening, me and these three other directors really just started to recognize that the music video stuff we were doing was barely even paying the bills and we were putting in so many hours and we needed to kind of start moving into a different yeah. place. And it didn't seem like television and film or anything that long form was even an option for us yet. So commercials, and I, this was in 2013. Right. Uh, the very like end of 2012, beginning of 2013, when I'm sure people may or may not remember, but branded content was the oh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Brands were just, you know, unloading money and trying to figure out how to basically capture audiences digitally. Yeah. So YouTube and Facebook and all, all these places, and, and mainly too, the advertising agencies really were not that interested in putting a ton of their bandwidth behind digital ads because they were making all their money in broadcast still. Right, yeah. So you had like these kind of high quality ads, but very low budget that only exactly. to, yeah, I remember that. So. so I think we really were just at the right place at the right time. And the one of the directors, and uh, Joe Sill, who's super talented director and, and visual effects artist, and 
he kind of had this idea for, hey, we could make an ad for Tesla because there isn't even a real ad. Elon's very public as saying he's never going to do advertising for Tesla. It sells itself. And the ad agency and the ad world in general is like vying to be a part of Tesla because it's such a sexy brand. Mm -hmm. So we (laughs) found a friend up in the Bay a friend's dad who had a really nice house and owned a Tesla. And <laughs> basically they invited us into their home for the day. I don't, from what I remember, they weren't even there. They just said, you know, use the garage and whatever. And we took a young actor at the time named Mace Cornell, who's actually a pretty big actor now on that Ricky Dicky Don. And I don't oh, know really? the name of the show, but the Nickelodeon <laughs> show. Um, and he, so we all went up there, a group of us, and we just shot the commercial and how do you guys come up with the idea? So, the, I mean, for people who haven't seen it, yeah. uh, it's, it's about a kid who's, uh, who gets kind of uh, this crazy, like, dreamlike inspiration. He sits, mm-hmm. in a, sits in a Tesla and he imagines himself kind of traveling the universe in a way. And then yeah. his dad suddenly sh- shows up. And we think it's like the end of the... Uh, the end of the imagination <laughs> or, you know, uh, the end of playtime. But then yeah. his dad kind of... You know, that's his real dad too which is oh, really yeah? funny his dad sort of where like joins him in a way or like kind of yeah. embraces the uh the fantasy of of that he's been living through right totally yeah i have to give credit where credit's due which is is really joe and uh there was another director involved named andreas it's high kind of they came up with the narrative and the collective really didn't get involved until we were actually heading into production oh cool um this was really the birth of Everdream at mm-hmm. the time. There, it wasn't very soon after the Tesla spot that we had all decided to take every piece of work to and pull it together and put it under directed by Everdream. Yeah, because no individual director at the time, with the exception of maybe Joe, because he had a pretty crazy body of of different vis- visual effects work and stuff that he had done over the years. Yeah, the guy was incredibly prolific in film school, even. But none of us were really getting individual opportunities, so we put everything together underneath the moniker of Everdream. And then when we went off and made that spot, Joe and Andreas came up with the story. They kind of came to the collective and said like, Hey, what do you guys think? I, I think at the time we took, we took some money from a lyric video we were, we were doing yeah. and shaved off 1500 bucks from <laughs> our profit, which was probably the entire profit and basically used it to fund the spot. And we went up to the Bay and we shot it and we came down and just was really a grind in the edit to get it down to 60 seconds. But we wanted to make it seem like a real spot, you know, right, just yeah. a, a clean 60. And it, it put the Tesla logo at the end and make it seem like a real, a real spot. But yeah. our goal was at the time, our thinking behind it was, Hey, we can basically take this around town and just get some brands to f- give us at least five, 10 grand to do a commercial. Yeah. We never had an, any idea of the kind of explosion that it would become. And one of the directors knew a low level employee at Tesla and basically just emailed it to them and said, Hey, like, it'd be really cool if you could show this around to your company. And I don't really think it was too long after that. We didn't even hear back. We just saw Elon tweet out the tweet and basically found, I don't even know if he found us on Twitter at the time, or maybe he did, but he just tweeted out something along the lines of, Hey, still never going to do an ad for Tesla. But if I did, this is what it would be. Wow. And and that kind of is a pretty insane endorsement. Like I can't imagine 
I can't imagine a better way for that to go. And as a result of him doing that, the ad world kind of was just lit on fire. So we, we became these very polarizing kids of the moment where half the ad world was really upset with us because they were like, the whole headline was kids create Tesla commercial for $1,500 and get the attention of ad world. Yeah. And so it was this whole portion of the, of the advertising community saying, these kids are going to ruin the industry. There's no way anyone can make a living making Doing ads for, for the, $1,500. Yeah. And we were like, guys, we literally, our kids, we, we did, there were hard costs that we waived to do this, just launch it. We're just trying to get attention. But then there was this other half of the community, which to kind of circle back what we were talking about earlier, where all of a sudden these brands who didn't really have a lot of money to spend on digital advertising and also really didn't care that much about it. I think they cared, but they really, the thing that was happening is brands were coming down on their agencies saying the footprint of digital is growing. You guys need to come up with more solutions for us content wise. And the agencies were saying, shit, we are making all of our money from our broadcast campaigns. What's our solution for digital? And so we became the one really smart thing we did, I think, um, was we, whenever, when Tesla exploded, we got millions of phone calls and meetings and Troy Carter, who at the the time was Lady Gaga's manager and a manager of many other people and also a big venture capitalist. A lot of people came in and said, hey, we want to buy your company or we want to do this because we quickly put Everdream in front of the Tesla spot and said, this was produced by our company. How did you manage to do that? Like what? Because usually when people, I mean, I've been in in a similar spot with like uh, different work and it's always like if it's a, well, it's a short film that I had kind of put up front and people are always like yeah. who directed it right yeah um but i imagine with the commercials the same thing like they probably were like who directed it did you kind of consciously yeah. were like well nobody it's it's a everdream commercial produced by it totally and, and everdream is like the, the the sort of entity that you should be crediting and uh and promoting we just completely you know whether it was the right thing to do or or the smartest thing to do at the time, we just completely controlled the narrative. And we didn't know what we were doing. We Googled how to put out a press release. We, we put together <laughs> yeah. um, essentially quotes of ourselves, which which was hilarious. But we basically did AdAge or AdWeek or one of the really big ad- outlets called us and yeah. they asked us five or six questions. And we were very careful about how we said, look, you know, we are a collective. We did this underneath Everdream and Everdream is also our company. And so we pretty strategically made it seem like we were this huge, this, this very professional company of young filmmakers. And I think the narrative got, uh, out there into the industry that there was this kind of young hip branded content entity with a whole bunch of directors that were behind a curtain that were going to be able to deliver across any genre and any, any format, because the other thing we did right before the Tesla thing came out is we took all of our work, music videos, thesis films, and cut together a really slick 60-second reel that made it look like we had been a part of multi-million dollar commercials. You know, there yeah. was like a cool hummingbird shot of one of the director's thesis, like a visual effects shot. And yeah. that, that shot isolated in a reel made it seem like it was from a massive project. Yeah. And so we just, we really created... And the truth was we knew we could deliver well beyond what many people were getting paid way more money than yeah. we were to do. We just basically put th- that reel, the Everdream reel, put up a website and the Tesla commercial. And we th- 
Tesla was kind of the gasoline for the fire. Yeah. Because it was four of us at the time. And then when Troy got involved, he was the only person that said, look, I don't want to change anything about what you guys are doing. To be honest, I don't even want to, I don't even want to get that involved because I don't want to mess up whatever magic you guys are, whatever's happening. I just want to open up my Rolodex to you. I want to own a portion of the company. I want to come in as a partner. Yeah. And that's really what he did. He basically said, what brands do you want to do stuff for? And then two days later, we'd be on a plane meeting with the CMO of that brand. Wow. And that, and because Troy was making those intros and saying, hey, so-and-so, like this is a new company I'm a part of. They did this commercial and they're doing all this other stuff. It, it just, it was really a very surreal yeah, time. that sounds like a, like a magical kind of the genie in a bottle suddenly shows up and is like, just uh, tell me who you want to work with and it, uh, I'll yeah. get you in the room with them. It, de- but, it definitely was. And, and, but, you, but it sounds like you guys have sort of had a strategy going into it. Did you have the website and that real cut before you went out with the, with the commercial or did you kind of think about it, scramble to put it together once you saw the reaction? Well, I think that we had everything done before the commercial went out. And I think before the commercial went out, we were really trying to start a production company. And that was all it was really. It yeah. was like, hey, if we can run these music video and commercial productions through the company, we can control the budgets and then use the profit to pay ourselves, basically. Right. And as a collective, it was the idea was that there would be some democratization of um, just basically we wanted to take care of the small group of creatives and we were getting hired to do all these small contract jobs. And, and we were well aware of the fact that I was making 600, $700 and the production company was making five, six, 7,000 or whatever it was yeah. off the top. We were like, wait a second, why can't we just have an entity like that? And then exactly pay, pay the collective. Which yeah. is, so I think when the Tesla thing went as big as it did, the website and everything wasn't we weren't some mad geniuses. We were just kids trying to start a production company and everything just kind of magically aligned at the yeah. right time. That sounds amazing. And and I'm just curious, like when I know you, you said kind of like the, the, the immediate goal that kind of set you off, set you off in that path was you were tired of making music videos that don't pay you anything. You were tired of doing yeah, like yeah. these, these uh, small roles in big productions that, you know, you, you wanted to be in charge of, of the, you know, of the production of the creative mm-hmm. and, and, and be on the top of the food chains as, 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 as much as you can, obviously, yeah. you know, under, in that, uh, branding and, and you know, uh, commercial sort of, um, a hierarchy tree, mm-hmm. um, was there a, um, would you say there was underneath your, uh, uh, Everdream sort of, uh, brand, a, some kind of creative edge that you were trying to achieve or was it just you guys wanting to do to, to be paid to direct things that, you know, yeah. for the time being are, are in the scope that you can still, you know, that you know you can chew on? That's a super good question because I think I'm missing uh, explaining a very vital part of, of why Everdream started, which was before Tesla was even created. Um, the four directors, uh, myself and the other three directors basically got together and came up with a very specific way in which we would collaborate, which was the typical model is, you know, you get a brief for a music video or a commercial or whatever it is. It comes in straight to that director. That director works on their pitch or the perspective on how they would bring it to life and then sends it back to 
whoever the, the, the client it, yeah the client is basically yeah. and what we decided we were going to do with everdream was even if two or three or all four of us at the time were pitching on the same project against one another by removing our individual names by the credit being directed by everdream what that meant is my name was on your project that you're pitching as much as your name is on mine yeah and so we all were incredibly forthright with our best ideas Mm -hmm. and often what would happen is three or four of us would pitch we were literally competing against one another for any job we were pitching against but because our individual names weren't on it, 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 it i think it was the right amount of straight out of film school naivete ambition yeah. that allowed us to all sit at a table eye to eye and often what would happen is somebody else's idea other than yours you would get more excited about and you would end up giving them better ideas for their idea than your own right Be- and it was just this beautiful thing that i don't think exists often in in uh especially hollywood but but just in creative environments you know right. it, th- there's this artistic fear that mm-hmm. you're going to fail and, and your individual identity isn't worthwhile. And yeah. I think it was this very rare window of time where all those filmmakers who all have are, are doing amazing things now as individuals were able to kind of come together and really grow. That's interesting. I wonder if part of it is because you, I mean, even though you each had your own kind of filmography going in, it wasn't that big and it was, and you were still sort of trying to find yourself I have, uh, my cousin came out to LA about half a year after me and he came out with a bunch of friends from Maryland Mm. and they all kind of lived in this uh, rented apartment and it sounds like, you know, it was very similar to what you're describing where they kind of came up with these uh, ideas for uh, a web series and they were doing these uh, 24 hour, you know, 48 hour uh, film contests. I, I took part in some of them with them and it was kind of like the same sort of deal even though I was like, I was just finishing two years or, you know, in the process of finishing two years of film school and they, and they didn't have that same background. It was kind of like, let's do something together and who cares? Yeah. Doesn't, nobody gets a directing, I mean, who end up directing it will direct, get the directing credit, but there was no... Well, when you think about it too, when you're yeah. a kid and you're, because I don't know about you, but for me, filmmaking definitely was born yeah. at, as a very young kid with my group of neighborhood friends. And yeah, I can even remember in, in high school, senior year, um, which is really where the idea that I could go to film school and go to college for this was, was planted by my, my film production professor in senior year of high school. But I remember specifically my group of friends every day after school, we would go to my house or my buddy Elliot's house or whoever, and just work on whatever movie we were working on at the time. And there was no question about who's the director, who's the cinematographer. It was right. like, it was just, let's do something. Yeah. Somebody was holding the camera. Somebody was pointing. Somebody had a, had a inspiring idea about like, right. Oh wait, what if we do this? And I think that, um, there's something about kind of society and identity and, and all of these things that start to influence our desire to become our own individual artist or I'm the director or whatever. And I think although there's some uh, validity in why those things have to exist, I am definitely a very strong believer in, I think, I don't remember who said this, 
at some in an interview or in a book I read or something, but was that the greatest lie Hollywood ever sold to the public was that Steven Spielberg directed Jaws and that <laughs> James Cameron directed Alien, right? Because the truth is, if you for the people in the film community and the definitely on those productions, yes, those filmmakers as the directors or as the writers or whatever, they were very much the curators of what's on screen and they were the arbiters of it, but their production designer and cinematographer, these people added so much more creative value. Yeah. And often their ideas were literally the ones that rose to the surface. And I think yeah. I'm a huge believer in, in just, I often feel like I'm, I want to surround myself with people way smarter than myself. And then, yeah, I, I remember, I, I'll never forget a quote from a director. You probably don't know him. And he's an, he's an Israeli director who worked out here a little bit, but his kind of big films are more, uh, you know, well-known back there. But he, he described the directing, his directing sort of style as being a part of a jazz band where mm. every, every collaborator he's working with has uh, equal opportunity to like improvise and to, and to inject their own style. Yeah. And, and you start, you start a, a tune and you never know where you're going to get because every, uh, every musician can take it somewhere else. And the, you know, his, uh, his uh, method of like kind of steering it is not really steering it, but just allowing that type of, of uh, freedom and allowing that type of uh, improvisation into the process and just embracing what every uh, musician kind of brings to the to the yeah, band. Yeah, I love that as a whole. And I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to look at things. And I think the best uh, directors are the ones that. I mean, you can tell from I'm, and I know also from anecdotes. I know some one actor that was on uh, a Spielberg film, and mm -hmm. he was kind of in Schindler's List. So. Uh, it's the film I think I've seen maybe 25 times or something. Oh my uh, gosh, that's before, that's before a hard was, film to watch that many times. Yeah, but you know what? I I watched and I was young. I was like in my early teens when I was wow. when I did that marathon of just watching it over and over and what, over again. What made you watch the movie that many times? Um, I think it's uh, I think it I think my mom bought me a um, a video cassette player or something back then. It was like one of the first films that was just on tv yeah. around that time and i recorded it and uh and i just i had it so i was we were playing it and and it just also happens to be an amazing uh just uh sample of filmmaking you forget totally. yeah. forget the fact you know forget the subject matter mm -hmm. as a film as as a as a piece of of uh movie making it's fantastic there's so many things about this film that are not even you know that are funny to a certain extent you know like um I mean, uh, it's a film that's filled with irony mm. and with sarcasm and with uh, uh, these kind of uh, twists and turns of plots. One thing, you, you know, it leads, it, it, it anticipates one thing and then kind of tw uh, breaks yeah. it apart. And, um, and you watch, and I just remember watching it and being like, uh, having this dialogue as I'm watching the film with, with Spielberg wow. about all those like, you know, moments where i can see where he's going it's like this kind of you know it's like uh watching a you know watching a like a a, a, a magician sort of set oh, up yeah, a magic yeah. trick and be like you know you're trying to find it and when you watch close enough you start noticing you know mm. when does he pull you know pull the rug under the, the floor you know under you yeah. and stuff you know and, and you watch enough and you start appreciating and you get this kind of um satisfaction of like oh i got it i i, I realized what he did here you know i kind of i can That's see so where cool that, that you had that experience at such a young age yeah i mean i i 
Yeah, that, and that was probably the one of the only films that I've seen in that way back to back. It was yeah. kind of like a uh, an intense sort of maybe a week or something like that, or a few days that I wow. uh, that I just did nothing, almost nothing, but just kind of watch it to the end, replay it back to the beginning, and watch it again. But um, but I remember talking to my friend years after that. You know, I didn't know him obviously back mm-hmm. then when I was thirteen or fourteen or whatever. But um, years after that i spoke to this guy who was in this film he was uh and because i've seen it so many times when he i knew exactly who he played and i remember exactly the scene <laughs> and uh i even remembered like the a line the line wow. word by word and i was like you know and i <laughs> said so i cool. love that scene and and what you did there was so funny there's a scene um where uh, uh schindler walks into a into a church and um and he's talking to these people who are apparently are Jewish and like they figured the best place to do business and the, the place where nobody suspects to find Jews is in the church <laughs> and they're sitting there and they're kind of whispering between like they're pretending to pray and they're whispering about you know their business and Schindler's walk walks in and he's, and he's trying to find you know these kind of you know there are uh, smugglers of, of all kinds of goods mm. and stuff and he's trying to fig- figure out where, where to get those goods and one of them I think he makes a remark about someone's like I like your shirt you know the the sheen of the white which i thought was really funny because it's a black and white movie yeah and like he was talking about the color the, the specific edge of the white shirt which is <laughs> like well is it white is this does the script say it's white or do i think it's white because i you know, what what color is wow this shirt? that's like a- i just remember that like these little puns of like you know whatever yeah. and um and this guy who's it's basically becomes a dialogue between Schindler's and, and another guy. And there's a third character that's kind of in the background. And he keeps interjecting into the conversation and repeating mm. the line of uh, either of them. So, you know, they're kind of going back and forth with this kind of uh, uh, transaction or, or negotiation. And he just kind of repeats the last, the last line to either of them. And then there's a punchline that uh, I don't remember if it's Schindler or the other person telling him. Uh, oh yeah, Schindler is telling this guy, uh, "Night's your problem," or something like that, kind of. Uh, or, and he, like, repeats that line or does like a, you know, this kind of state, this kind of um, uh, thing that he does with the repeating the line, mm-hmm. and kind of gives. He basically wraps up the scene, the scene with like a repeat of of the punch. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was, you know, it's incredible because it's a kind of a comedic kind of beat at the end of a, a very kind of banal scene to yeah, people yeah. just uh, having a. Uh, in exchange and um, and I remember talking to him about this he was like yeah it was completely improvised like the his role of like repeating those lines was something that he was just sitting with uh, with uh, uh, Liam Neeson and the other and the other character as they were re- rehearsing the scene and he just heard it so many times that and he got bored that he started to like kind of repeat wow. the scene trying to throw them and off and Spielberg just liked it and Spielberg it was like at some point Spielberg was walking by as they were rehearsing like hey come come here check this out and they were like doing running it and he was kind of interjecting, and Spielberg just was like, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's keep it in the film." And that's how that <laughs> that moment happened, you know. So. Well, that makes me think about even because uh, I'm also a, a massive Spielberg fan, and especially as a young filmmaker growing up, I think his films. You watch his movies and and are affected by his movies, but then they're also amazing teachers. Oh yeah, like going back to watch his movies, I learned so much about. Uh, you know, just dramatic irony and all these things you learn in film school, but then those are the movies that you can really pick it out with. And I I remember the story about Saving Private Ryan where there's that amazing scene where they're all just walking, all the soldiers are just walking up that hill and they're just having that conversation. And it's a, you know, it's where you really learn about their backstories and the relationships. And 
that wasn't a scene that was in the movie at the time they uh, were just shooting. And I think Vin Diesel and I, I can't remember who else were, were doing that in it for them, for themselves as actors to just have backstory. And they were yeah. just walking up and down this hill in the middle of a shoot day why, you know, they're probably setting up a shot or something. And Spielberg saw them doing it. And he was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, Oh, nothing. They were almost ashamed to tell him. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. What I, I heard what you guys were talking about. It seemed interesting. And they're like, Oh, well we've made up our own backstories and we were sharing them with each other. And he's like, Oh really? Okay. Wait, can you do it again? And he stood at the top of the hill and he's, he grabbed the writer over and said, Hey, watch this watched the scene and he said, okay, I want you to write me a scene with the whole battalion or the whole group of soldiers where they do that. And they literally wrote that eight page scene or whatever. It's a, it's a super long scene and then just added it to the end of the, the shooting schedule. And those are the moments where I think, um, to piggyback on top of the, the jazz comment you were referencing about the other director, I think that's really what he, Spielberg's doing, right? Is yeah. he, he's really seen an amazing solo by another instrument or somebody adding something to the song and saying, "Well, wait a second, we need to incorporate that into this right. this movie." Because I think just being it takes a a level of kind of confidence to be oh, able yeah, to, to like to, to be s- aware of those things and yeah. ride with them. And I think that uh, I mean I remember having this issue with like over preparing to certain things like I, I yeah um, I at some point reached a like a, a place where I was so uh, I guess I was very kind of uh, anxious towards a certain shoot and I got mm-hmm. so over you know so immersed in in trying to be prepared to the point where it's like if even if I even if I was sick that day I would you know send my crew they would still be able to shoot it the way I wanted because yeah. it was like so perfectly you know planned with yeah with storyboards and everything and I remember like being you know, uh, almost getting a, a panic attack that night because I was like, I'm not realizing it'll, it'll never, yeah, either it'll, I'm not, yeah, I just, there was like these little small things that were just not perfectly thought, yeah. uh, thought through. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just gonna like, I'm not gonna be able to do this tomorrow and stuff. And then, you know, the day came and the actors were late and, you know, the realities of the day just start mm-hmm. unfolding and they come and, you know, everybody's like just, telling the story of how they woke up in the morning and like got into the car. <laughs> and you're like, guys, we need to be shooting this now. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. well, and, but that in a way that kind of released the pressure off my back because like, you know, it's a, just a normal day in their lives and we're going to get, have fun. We're going to shoot it. And, yeah. um, you know, even if we start two hours late, I'm sure we'll be able to, in a way being on, being on set, uh, released all the tension that mm. kind of was building up the days before because, I don't know why. It's just uh, you know, some maybe one day I'll, I'll go back and re- and kind of inter- you know try to uh, reflect on it more and, and try to figure out. But in a way, for some reason, the days before were filled with speculation and uncertainties mm. and what's gonna you know what can break and stuff. And things broke. It's not like you know you yeah. you come to the you came to the day and everything was ready. There's things that didn't you know that weren't there that was supposed to be there. And we just improvised and, you know, figured what, what we can do. In, in but you're finally dealing in tangibles because yeah. you're actually there and you're reacting to some, something that's literally going to be yeah, caught exactly. on film. You know, but one of, the, one of the discoveries I've made, I mean, and I've learned now that I look at this film, like, oh, my God, I made so, so many mistakes that I didn't even realize that I was making as I was making the yeah. film. Like, to me, it was like just the, the tension was to get it done 
right, quote unquote, right being what my vision for it was back then. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, all that energy that I was kind of uh, (laughs) uh, throwing into it, into trying to get that vision. And the vision wasn't the right vision. I mean, you look back and you're like, well, that's not the right vision. So what good is it to spend all that energy to get that, you know, across? But you have to do it and that's how you learn. And and, uh, Well, and I think... I was so obsessed with different directors' processes, and I still am, but I think the one thing I've learned is that just like people and personalities, every individual artist has a completely subjective process that's specific to them, and and the amount that you prep and don't prep, and you you come from David O. Russell shooting 360 degrees, two cameras, and it's this very chaotic thing where he's shouting out things that the actor should be doing to like a David Fincher who's uh-huh. hyper controlled and specific, but does hundreds of takes. And yeah. um, I think that the one, the only constant takeaway for me as a filmmaker was to just, and I'm sure you probably feel the same is do enough projects and really be very self-aware and honest with yourself about what works for you and doesn't work for you. And I think every project is also different because you're dealing with different people. Yeah. So you're dealing with different crew and actors and they need different things. And, um, you know, Ed Zwick, uh, the the famous filmmaker, when I was at Chapman, they used to have these things, these rotunda dinners. I actually just wrote a blog post about this for Dodge, the film school, um, that comes out next week. But because it's one of the most profound experiences I had at Chapman, Ed Zwick came in and sat down and not only did he say all these really crazy things about like guys, drop out of film, leave this dinner and drop out of film school, take half your tuition and go travel the world and get your heart broken and fuck up your life because you don't even know what you're trying to say yet as filmmakers. I guarantee you at 20, 21, you have no clue what you're trying to say. And of course I didn't do that. But the other thing he said in that dinner, which blew my mind. And of course we're in there with all these faculty members who are just like, Oh my gosh, is he really telling these kids (laughs) these things? Leave school. Yeah. Like Ed's relaxed, but it was, I thought it was incredible, but he, basically said, look, here's how you need to think about directing actors. He's like, actors are basically lovers. And when you're a director and and you're working with an actor that you're going to have a long standing relationship with during the shoot or whatever, especially the leads, these are your lovers. And he's like, here's the thing about lovers, whether you know this or not, because, you know, most of these kids are 19, 20 years old. He's like, everyone likes to get fucked differently. (laughs) And it takes a little while to know how a certain person likes to be fucked, basically. And he basically goes on to say, like, every actor is going to want something different the same way that every lover wants something different. And you it's your job as the director to basically figure out how your actors like to be fucked. And then and let me let me (laughs) add to it the fact that oftentimes you're fucking more more than one actor at the same time. Exactly. And different people like different uh, <laughs> types of uh, three-way or four-way yep, yep. Uh, situations. I mean, I, I've been there with like, you know, five actors in a room <laughs> and one actor likes to be fucked in a way that another yep. actor does not like totally. that actor to be fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, wait a second. Now I have it's to... It's very like, complicated. <laughs> but like, I think uh, I think aside from his, his pretty controversial way of... of uh, metaphorically representing it. I think it, it was something that didn't make complete sense to me. And I thought it was just kind of funny and hilarious. And then as I've 
directed more and and especially with actors who get to a certain level where they have a very specific process it really is to your point yeah. you're in a room with five of them and you have to find a way to not trigger any of them negatively and still preserve what each one of those individual people needs and yeah. i think um yeah i mean directing as an art form is really kind of the most wild thing yeah. ever and and i mean just filmmaking in general but i think that they're also i remember when i was in film school i had this friend who was always extremely wise and i was putting together my thesis you know i'm 20 years old or whatever and he said something along the lines of it's really crazy that we're even in the position where we're so arrogant to think that anyone even wants to listen or watch our story yeah and at the time that kind of blew my mind because I was just so focused on making movies, but that still rings true in my head all the time where there is a level of kind of delusion. And I don't know if arrogance is the right thing, but in thinking that your story is worthwhile to an audience or. And you know, that's a good uh, segue kind of back to what we we're talking about with Everdream. And that kind of was one of the reasons I was asking if you guys had a certain you know, a creative trademark or mm. signature that you're trying to uh, embody or encapsulate with Everdream. Since yeah. you are like a, a group, I know, yeah. I know me as a kid, as a, you know, uh, one filmmaker wannabe, um, I was asking myself, you know, what stories can I tell and stuff? And I was answering those questions with uh, maybe, you know, some delusional ideas of that. Oh, wow, I have such a special yeah. life and I come from an interesting <laughs> place and whatever. Um which I think a lot of directors do. You know, everybody was talking about how, like, you know, Spielberg grew up without a dad, and that's why his movies sure. always have like they're always about divorce, broken and, family yeah. situation, and stuff. And uh, well, you know, it's great for him. <laughs> like, it depends on how you watch it, yeah, you yeah. see it. But like, yeah, well, he has. But how many kids grow up in broken families? And yeah, yeah. You got tons of people like that. It's not what made, you know, what's what makes him a good filmmaker, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but it is an edge. Um, but I. I kind of want to go and talk about the Tesla, um, yeah, for sort of sure. the the, um, the fact that so Elon Musk tweeted it, and I read somewhere online, uh, and you and you promoted the film as uh, as Ever Dream. Just kind of recapping, yeah, uh, as an Ever Dream project. No, n neither one of you guys were like kind of came forward as we I directed it. Is that what sort of happened, or? Uh, well, so I think that are you talking about when it happened? When it happened, yeah, yeah, when when it was actually a little bit problematic to be honest because i think uh joe sill who d directed the piece and um you know in in any of these evergreen productions there was always one or two or three directors who were really at the helm and then the collect the collective was very much there to support in the development and principal photography and post and it, it was kind of this uh, amalgamation of just different people hopping on different projects at different times and once we got to the point where we we're doing multiple productions it was always just kind of a a revolving door. But at the time when the Tesla spot happened, it was directed by Everdream. There was no director credited. But then what ended up happening is, of course, the press doesn't like not crediting people. They want to have some name to pin on it. And so myself, and because I was the CEO of the company or whatever, I was also kind of the forward-facing individual of of this creative collective, I got credited in a lot of the press and stuff. Right. So I did see that, I think. And yeah. Yeah. And I think what they were trying to do is it was this complicated line where certain people were getting credited as 
these kids who graduated from film school went off and made this, but it, it became a problem because then, you know, Joe started, was frustrated by like, well, wait a second. If, if you're, if you're being credited or certain people are being credited, then why can't each individual person be credited? And yeah. I, th I think that the problem with the collective model and it became more problematic as the years went on mm. with the collective was just that when you're a young filmmaker at the time when we all for, for went, uh, or we, we chose to forego crediting our individual names. We were at a place where we were just vying for creative survival. If yeah. we could get paid to be filmmakers, that was the dream. But then once you actually arrive at that place where, oh my gosh, we're actually making commercials and there's also other opportunities that are presenting themselves and we're actually making our living as directors and writers and, and whatever. Then all of a sudden, I think it, there were certain people in the collective that really wanted to define their individual identity. And yeah. each individual person was kind of starting to, to was at a different place in their creative journey where certain directors loved being a part of the collective and didn't need their individual names credited but certain directors were really like guys like my my specific body of work is so is different than a lot of others and yeah it became this thing where as we started getting two three years into it um and it was a constant point of uh, not constant but it was a recurring uh conversation that came up where yeah. like guys can we what if it was directed by an individual name but then it was made in ever dream or it was oh. created by ever dream and so i think at some point we did start crediting directors I, I can't completely remember but um i think with any the the biggest thing about ever dream that was really interesting it started with four directors we were all really good friends and roommates three of us were roommates at the time yeah. and and the company went from f the four of us which were basically this ragtag group that propped this company up on its on its feet by ourselves yeah and then the company grew from four to 30 in the first nine months and i think what happened is the culture of the company grew faster than we could literally swallow and and actually wow. be able to digest and i think so when you grow to 30 it's does that does that mean you got a facility and you have had, a production uh crew and uh, equipment and all that yeah so the first i think year or so we incubated in troy's uh, troy had an office called adam factory which is his management company and he okay. had he had a beverage company called Popwater that had this uh, really cool office directly across the street, but not that many people were working in it. So he literally gutted the gym that was in that facility and was like, guys, you can move in here. And it was this tiny, it was basically a gym. It was like no windows. Wow. There was 14 or 15 of us in there in the beginning. And it was kind of this hilarious sweatshop of just all of us and all these young kids too, that were straight out of film school, pretty much walked across the podium and, and went straight into this company. Yeah, And then after that just got too insane and we started actually making some some decent money we got our own facility and like way too big and started uh generating a way more professional level of output but i yeah. think what the thing about everdream that's interesting is um and i can only really take my own individual credit and i was in some capacity kind of like the creative uh leader of of the company um, you were the CEO. I was the CEO. And then there was a business 
um, a, an SC grad who was the, the business head of the company that became the CEO. And then I became the chief creative because I mm. really didn't want to be handling the business side of the yeah. company. And I, it was hard to, cause these were my best friends and dealing with payment and right, the money yeah. side of things started to get a little bit, uh, kind of hazy as to where did I draw the line between now all of a sudden I'm the hand that's feeding Right. a lot of my really good friends. And so the culture of that company really started out as this like beautiful utopian society. And I think as money and credit and certain directors pieces were winning awards and others weren't, oh, I think yeah. naturally kind of what happens when you're this creative family is each individual kid wants to go out into the world and define their own identity. Yeah. And right about that time, uh, one of the partners had kind of been, there was some foul play involved with some money stuff, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And so that was one of the four that founded it? No, it was, it was one of the people that got involved after, okay. after the original four. Thank God. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm just digging, trying to dig. Yeah, yeah, you're like, who like, was uh, it? I mean, if you did enough research, you could figure it out. But, right. the, um, but essentially, that kind of hiccup in, in the culture of the company, any other experienced business person or whatever would have just rode that out and continued the company. But we essentially closed up shop. And then the head of production at Everdream was like, look, I want to start my own commercial company. It's going to be a traditional commercial company uh, because Everdream, every person was on a salary yeah. and was basically a creative agency. We were a content agency. We were generating the agency creative and then also producing it as a production company. He said, you know, look, the company kind of came to an end very abruptly and it was tragic really. I mean, we were these kids, this, this place was our home. How old were you? Like 25 or 25? I was 25 years 25, old. Yeah. yeah. I literally turned 25 the month after we closed our doors. Oh, really? And, and it was like abruptly, like you just, and it was, was it basically, sort of, uh, it was basically, um, without f getting too much into it, from like a legal liability perspective or whatever, the real issue with the company was cash flow. Yeah. It was just that the business side of the company hadn't been completely forthright with the amount of money we had in the bank versus the amount of money that was coming in. Oh, I and see. so there in California, legally, if you don't have enough money in the bank to pay your employees for like three or four weeks out, you have to technically fire everybody mm. with enough l runway to pay them X amount of weeks of severance. Yeah. So my accountant came to me and said, Hey, there's a huge issue with these books. I need you to look at this. And then basically advised me like close shop to kind of quote unquote close shop. But at the time there was a very easy solution to it all. Yeah. But the culture of the company and people wanting their own identities and stuff, it was just a really weird time. And so when that hiccup happened, it kind of was just like people were, and the, the truth of the matter was we got into this, with a lot of creative drive and passion. And at the end of it, we were doing these giant commercial campaigns that weren't necessarily creatively fulfilling. Yeah. And so I think people, at least for myself, I was just trying to keep the company alive, but I think a lot of the individual creatives that were there were just kind of disillusioned with like, shit, like how did we start from such a perfect utopian place and get to this place where the money is the issue and certain people are getting more credit than others. And I think that we were all kind of growing up yeah. way faster than we should have been. And also, 
you know, it takes most people five, six, seven, eight years to even reach the point where they're at that point in their careers, let alone be learning how to navigate friendships and, uh, you know, uh, responsibilities and stuff. So anyways, long story short, that ended up getting to the point to where that company spun into this other company called Whitelist, which is still a company and it's booming. And a lot of those directors are just doing amazing work there. And in 2016, uh, I basically, when I was running Everdream for three years, the whole goal was to direct. I basically could barely direct while I was there because we had so much stuff to do. And I felt like I had lightning in a bottle in my hand. And if I ever went off to direct, I was going to drop the lightning in a bottle and it was going to be ruined for not only myself, but every other person at the company. Right. Cause my best friends were directors directing like really cool projects. And so I just said, look, I'm going to put this, I'm going to basically be the head of this company that for my friends and for, of course, for myself, because it was also really amazing to have been uh, barely graduated from film school and, and getting to work on these cool projects. But so when, that come when Everdream came to an end, I all of a sudden went into commercials like I'm three years behind. I yeah, have to make like every commercial I do my magnum opus. And what yeah. that what that led to was me being taking things with and as I'm sure you know in commercials, the agency and the client often come in and just say like, nope, we want it this way or we want it that way. And you just have to be okay with it. And I wasn't, I was like, no, you don't get it. This is my magnum opus. Like, you know, I was directing like a cable commercial and I was acting like I was directing, you know, ET or something. (laughs) And so what that led to was just a lot of creative friction between me and, uh, the clients and ultimately me and the production company, because they were like, dude, you need to chill. And so I, in 2016, I was freaking out and having an existential crisis because I all of a sudden realized I'd spent the last five years in advertising and I never even imagined doing commercials, to be honest. I went to film school to make movies. I graduated from film school with the intention to do movies. Um, yeah, and like your 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 kind of concern at the time was unrelated to your ultimate goal. Totally. Financial stability. Yeah. And I think that the the financial stability, the fear of just survival definitely pulled me in a direction that I don't, I don't regret by any means, but I I was, I became acutely aware all of a sudden that, Oh, wait a second. I actually wasn't following my heart or being as necessarily strategic. So I kind of left, um, the collective, which, which was a really hard decision to make, but I just decided that I needed to get away from advertising and really go and find a way to start making narrative projects. And it was, this was also another boom where Vimeo had a subscription video on demand service. Gunpowder and sky was giving money. So there were people that were two or three degrees of separation away from me that were getting three, four, $500,000 to make digital series for these SVODs. And a really good buddy of mine, Stephen Mastricola, who I knew from Chapman, was uh, at the time living in the Bay. And I had I was living in this, ca- in this house. I had this amazing couch with all these roommates. And my roommates were always out of town doing commercials. And I said, why don't you come live with me and we'll put all of our n- narrative projects into digital show pitches because yeah. there's a boom of these things happening right now. And we did that and we optioned a show that we put together called Lonely Hunter that we still really want to make this kind of this science fiction show. 
follows this character and then halfway through the season you realize you've been following this character you thought was human and she's actually artificial intelligence um it's kind of a really interesting moral audience dynamic where you empathize with somebody before you know that they're not human but we set that up at crypt tv and it was the first time we ever got paid as narrative filmmakers you know to and when we optioned that show it led to us getting a manager and then all of a sudden agents got really interested in us. So how did you option it without a manager? Did you get, did you know people in Crypt TV? Uh, yeah. So Kate Krantz, who's their, I think that she's technically the chief creative officer over there. She was in very early. I had known her via ever the Everdream days. She went to Chapman. She was, and we had been talking about potentially doing some sort of collaboration with some of the Everdream directors and it never happened, but I always stayed in touch with her. Yeah. And I was just always a fan of what she was doing at Crypt and, and mainly just her in general. She was, she was a creative exec that unlike a lot of experiences I've had with creative executives, she really got the filmmaking side of things. And so I sent it to her actually, uh, I sent her the pitch for her advice. Hey, I've never put together a pitch, a pitch yeah, for me, a digital series like right. is there something i'm missing and she just responded immediately and said oh my gosh we literally are looking for something just like this we're pitching a slate to black pills mm-hmm. which comes into the the narrative shortly after this could we option this from you for six months or three months or whatever because our pitch is in a week and we'd love to present this as one of our projects i think that's a great takeaway that you know oftentimes People are like, oh, I'm, I feel so like weird t- contacting people and being like, hey, I got this thing for yeah. you. Are you looking for pitches and stuff? And I'm like, just ask for advice. Well, you and I are literally here because I, I saw you were a part of a sci-fi group and I sent you a message for my Kickstarter because I was like, oh, he might be interested or know somebody or whatever. Right. And now we're literally doing this podcast because I basically spammed you. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, but, and, and you're basically asking for help. You're not like... yeah, uh, yeah. It's like people say, well, if, if I'm, you know, it's like sending someone a script, it's like, you know, they're not going to want to do that. Uh, maybe it's not, um, it's like, you know, you're knocking on someone's door and asking them for money and like, yeah. you don't want to do that. But when you're asking for a, an advice or something like that, you're giving them, people love giving advice. People love yeah, being asked yeah. for, you know, to pick their brains. Like, yeah, I, I want to be there and have someone like, uh, grill me with questions it'll help totally. me kind of sort things out in my head and i, I also think when the, the especially this kickstarter campaign which is literally me calling and emailing every single person from family friends and two three four five six degrees of separation away yeah. i think the most important thing is just asking people for whatever it is you need but without expectation yeah because they're you know at any given moment it's somebody's complete right to just not be in a position to give you their time or give you their whatever. But I think you're hundred percent right. People really want to help. Mm-hmm. I had a mentor during the Everdream days that taught me something that I've, oh, I still think about often and I'm not sure if it's entirely the right way to approach it, but it, it's influenced a lot of the way I email people and a lot of the way that I reach out to people I don't have a relationship with when I'm asking them for something. He always said, people really, really, really want to help. They, it's it's within them, unless they're just some like sort of sociopath or yeah. something. But, if, but the majority of people want to say yes. So the thing you have to do is you have to, uh, you have to, it, he called it the big ask. Yeah. 
you have to the ask the thing that you're asking of them has to be extremely simple and easy for them. Yeah. It has to be something. It's like I always imagine those target ads with like the easy button. Where right. It's like just hit the easy button. It's that easy. I always imagine sliding that across the table whenever I'm asking somebody for something and making it so simple of like, hey, when, for instance, I do this all the time where I email people that I really would love to connect with. Oh, as a producer, I'm a huge fan of, a director, a writer. I just say, hey, and it's one or two lines so that they can read the email yeah. and it doesn't take them time. I was a fan of this. I loved what you did here. I'm a young filmmaker, whatever. I would just love five minutes of your time. It can be on a phone call. It can be coffee. I will come to you. I will do whatever. And I always make sure that they recognize that I'm literally asking of such a small sliver of their life yeah. that for them to say no, they actually almost feel bad right. saying no. Um, and what often ends up happening is they say yes. And then they want to talk to you for an hour. Right. Or for two <laughs> hours. You know, they, they all of a sudden go, oh my gosh, I can't, I, I want to tell you more about my life and I want to tell you more about how I got that project made. And yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that has been an, a and massive... And it's worked for you. Like what, you, what would you say is your biggest, uh, best kind of uh, surprising uh, cold outreach? Oh man, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I definitely think that in the Everdream era, there were some pretty huge swings we took that we connected, but that's not completely fair because we had people like Troy and other individuals that were influencing that. I think I'm trying to think what would be the one that probably was the most... It doesn't have to be the uh, like biggest. It could be like yeah. just just an unexpected turn of events, you know, or like you know. Uh, um. Oh, you know what? This is one, and I'm gonna actually tell you guys who it is because they're incredible writers. Um, my manager Bash sent me this TV pilot called Small Town, which okay. he was raving about, and and I really respect his opinion. And so when he told me about it, I was like, I have almost out of jealousy. Like, what is this? He, he thinks this is so much better than the stuff I'm yeah. working on. Like, I need to read this thing. Yeah. And I read it and it was incredible. And it was one of the most original. It's called Small Town. It's called Small Town. It's so cool. And the pitch itself was also much more than the pilot. It was a pilot. It was a podcast integration. It was all this stuff. Wow. And it was so well put together. I, I, in a fanboy way, reached out to these writers that are in Australia named, uh, Lachlan Marks and Ella Roby. Mm -hmm. So plug those guys because they're sweethearts and they donated the Kickstarter and we, we've gone back and forth. That's but nice. I read it and I just reached out to them expecting them not, I think on Twitter or Instagram or something, expecting nothing back. And they immediately replied, were wanted to know what I was working on. And um, to me, these those kinds of interactions too, I have on a pretty regular basis where I will just send a DM or a, uh, on Twitter or Instagram or something, just responding to something somebody else did. Hey, I really love that. I'm a filmmaker. I'd love to connect and yeah. grab coffee sometime. And often these people are like way, uh, way further into their careers than I am. And right. I, I, I'm always overwhelmed by not only the response, but the fact of how immediate they're just like, oh yeah, for sure. Like, I think there's also these filmmakers that like Ryan Johnson oh, and yeah. Steve Yedlin on Twitter. I mean, it was crazy. Steve just tweeted something out about 
these crazy uh, rigs that his gaffer built for Knives Out, okay. where they basically had these light panels and with tape and stuff, they made oh, it look they, like windows. Yes, yeah. Did you see I, this I on Twitter? The, I saw, I don't know if it was on Twitter, Twitter or somewhere else, but yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. There's one in particular where he's he literally like created, forced perspective. yeah, the forced yeah, perspective is like the right one. angle window uh-huh. and it's in the reflection of Daniel Craig's glasses. Yeah. And I just was, Brilliant. my mind was blown and I just tweeted out, Stephen, immediately he commented on the tweet like thanks man or whatever i'm like what the hell like what does this guy have any business talking to me on on twitter about so i always am over i'm always very mentioned you have a a social media following is that twitter how many followers instagram instagram Instagram. yeah i it's actually it's always hard because it it kind of fluctuates just based on my activity but especially because of this kickstart campaign i'm almost at twelve thousand followers and wow. I, but i think the majority of that came in the era when we were doing tons of everdream commercials and oh, yeah. we kind of became because the sad thing about everdream was right when it came to an end we were actually in the midst of creating a young filmmaker program that was going to be through usc chapman and uh eventually LMU and we were going to expand it, but it was going to be this whole course where you took a class. It was going to be sponsored by a real brand. And then you were going to create a real commercial and they were going to teach you how to put together a pitch, deal with an agency, deal with clients, shoot. It was going to be like an amazing course. Cause when I graduated from Chapman, the thing that I thought was a huge oversight on the curriculum was like, guys, you're teaching kids how to make narrative. First of all, you're teaching kids how to make short films when they're going to go make features or TV. Yeah. And then you're, they're also all going to graduate and they're, 90% 90% of these kids are going to be paying their bills for the next three to five years making music videos and commercials, but there's nothing that t- teaches them about how to format a treatment for a music yep. video or a commercial. So we were developing that curriculum. So anyways, I think a lot of the social media following came from me kind of being this uh, spokesperson for young filmmakers finding a way to break into commercials. And because of the Tesla spot and... Um, just what that represented to young people at the time. Like, yeah. wow, these kids did it. And so can we, which was a really cool right. kind of component to it. Um, so basically you built uh, the target audience for this podcast <laughs> 10 years ago or I, whatever. I think what's interesting though is, is it's still pretty mind blowing that it's 2019. The Tesla ad I think came out in, in 13? T- 2013. Yeah. So six years ago and it's still, the thing that often most people are asking i mean not always yeah. like because for instance when um i don't know if i'm taking up too much of your time but uh no no it's uh we're good the thing yeah. that's really kind of mind-blowing to me is um that kind of occurrence that chain of events where we made the ad and elon tweeted it out that's such a rare occurrence yeah. and but there have definitely been things that have happened that have been equally as insane. Um, even for instance, Lonely Hunter, which got optioned by Crypt TV, that leading to us selling the Black Pill Show, Simi yeah. Valley, all of those things were very serendipitous occurrences. For instance, when to talk about Simi Valley for a second, which was probably the the biggest thing I've made to date in terms of a narrative like series yeah yeah yeah. and that literally happened because my man my manager my well our manager Stephen and and I got signed by the same manager Bash and at the time Adam Adam Englehart we were repped by both of them 
um, they sent us into a general at Adaptive Studios. Which is a general meeting, which means usually you get out of it a, a bottle of water. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, bottle, like water bottle meetings is what they call it. And, and just you go in and basically talk about <laughs> random stuff and what you're working on and what the studio is doing and, or the production company. And often they're a waste of time. Yeah. Or at least they feel that way. And we went into this general and the whole time they were kind of asleep and not that interested in what we were doing. And at the end of the meeting, one of the creative execs was like, wait, you were one of the guys that creative ever dream. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I went to Chapman. That was crazy. When we were at Chapman, you guys were like doing these wild things. Everyone was talking about it. And so he literally, the meeting wasn't even about us and what we were working on. All of a sudden he was just interested in like that thing really blew up in spectacular fashion. Like I'd love to hear the story sometime. And <laughs> so me trying to capitalize on just the relationship, I said, yeah, great. Let's go to drinks or whatever. I'll tell you the story. And so we went out one time me and Steven shortly after there and had yeah. drinks with this creative exec who's also named Steven Christensen, who's a good buddy of mine now. Um, and we just, I just told him, I was just very honest with him about the, the wild ride of right. whatever dream was. And he basically, we just formed a, a relation, a creative relationship. And then once we got past that barrier, then it was just very honest of like, what are you guys working on and what's cool? And he, Steven called me and Steven, it's weird because there's two Stevens that uh, <laughs> right before Christmas, like a week before Christmas and said, hey, guys, we have a slate deal with Black Pills, which basically means they're selling. At, they were selling six shows to Black Pills. Oh, wow. But but the thing that was a contingency is they only got the budget for each individual show if they if they were able to get six ideas greenlit before Christmas. Mm. And so they had four sold through and they had two slots and they had completely tapped their IP. Oh, like, wow. They're like, we're out of concepts and we're literally banging the phones asking every creative if they have something they haven't shown us yet. Because if we don't sell two shows in basically a week, the whole deal falls apart. Oh, wow. That's an interesting and, deal. Well, yeah. And I think often these are kind of that this is the time to strike as a young, unproven yeah. creative is when... They'll take a risk on it. Exactly. Or whatever it comes comes their way, yeah. Well, and so Stephen and I... Stephen was literally in Boston and him and I remotely put together... We took four or five things that we had and put them into pitches. And Simi Valley was one of them, which was something we were talking about making as a really low-budget feature. Right. And it's Simi Valley is where I grew up. Basically, the the crux of it is that while I was living in Simi Valley in high school, there was a ton of uh, crime and uh, kind of this underworld of petty theft and stuff that was happening. That was when I would tell people those stories about what happened about like retail theft and different stuff. People's minds were really blown. So Steven and I were like, well, we should turn that into a narrative because it's clearly something people who were in high school always knew about someone who was in getting into that. And so we turned that into a show and sold the idea through and they called us literally the day, I think it might've even been Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas Eve and said, Hey, like, they bought the show. Like we're going to be making Simi Valley next year. And it, then we spent wow. all of 2017 making. So did you direct that it? Show. I did. I technically, I co-created it with Steven. Steven wrote the entire season, um, which was six episodes, six, 10 minute episodes. So it was 60 yeah, minutes. And 60 then minutes. So I directed to, the entire people thing. don't know black pills because a lot of people don't yeah, know black pills. Yeah. That's part of the tragedy. 
Yeah, it was a really cool um, endeavor, right? It was like a company that basically wanted to do uh, Netflix for the smartphone, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So content that was there. There were specific. It was basically made like any like film, only chapters. Well, the the episodes were were shorter. So their, kind their of, whole business model is basically what Jeffrey Katzenberg is doing with Quick Bites, Quibi. Quibi, yeah. So oh, that's what what Quibi is. Quibi, Quibi stands for Quick Bites, yeah. And the whole the whole business model is basically predicated on. People are always going to watch 30-minute and 60-minute pieces of content at their TV, at their home yeah. theater, or whatever. But they're also watching 5-minute, 10-minute videos on their phone during the subway ride or in the office or right. whatever. And so they were trying to say, like, we're going to be the, we're going to fill the gap of premium content for right. Quick Bites, which, which is exactly. Quibi's version. But that's what Black Pills was trying to do at the time, too. We're going to make sure that there is absolutely no interaction between people when they're out there. <laughs> But but back to um, I think uh, I want to talk about the short uh, ready or not ready or not yes um, and about other shorts that you've done in in, in the course of the last year mm-hmm. if people go, they're going to go to the website to your website and yeah. check it out I'll, I'll definitely uh, link to it in the in this episode's page and um, in that website there's a bunch of commercials are those things that you uh, did after uh, Everdream or any of those. Did you direct during Everdream or? Um, that's a good question. The, the, I'm trying to think about what's on my website. There's definitely the Microsoft commercial mm-hmm. was something I directed at Everdream. Um, and, and so me and one other director co-directed that, but it was produced basically by the collective. Yeah. Um, and I, to be honest, I really didn't direct very many things while I was at Everdream because I was running the company, right. which was part of the problem. And... Uh, since that, so pretty much everything else, like the, um, the Dodge college spot, which I, which probably is my favorite thing I've done. And it's one of the smallest commercial. I mean, we did that commercial for like very little money. I loved Um, it. I thought it was great because it's like also about filmmakers and it's, it's where you came from. And there's kind of like, it's funny because you watch. You watch a, a really made spot about the process of becoming the person to direct this really well made spot. That, that commercial is really a love letter to Chapman. being a film student oh, at, to, Cha- yeah. at Dodge or Chapman. And that the, the thing is, too, is the writer who wrote that the copy for that commercial, um, Tadeo, was my roommate at Dodge and... So in every single person, the the DP, the gaffer, they were all the people that I literally shot my shorts at film school yeah. with. So that whole crew of filmmakers from Chapman went back to make that spot. So it really was this this labor of love where we were so passionate about our experience at Dodge and went back and and the film school basically uh, just opened up their doors and let us go crazy. And um, and as far as like the shorts that you have also on your website, mm-hmm. like Falling Up, is that something you did at school or was yeah, it- Falling Up was actually my thesis, thesis. film, and right. I can't really say too much about it, but I'm actually specifically where it's happening, but I'm actually in the process of turning that into a kids show. Oh wow! Um, cool. Yeah, a, a kids network reached out not that long ago and basically said, "Look, we're really interested in in turning this into a children's." TV show and so, but the, the pitch for the short at least was that it's a, it's a kid that has a unusual condition where he basically yeah. is like floating in the air and needs to wear he's told to wear this like kind of a weight jacket or something yeah, to yeah. keep him down and I'm not going to spoil the end and I'll partially because I haven't seen the end, 
but <laughs> so I can't. Uh, but I'm gonna finish watching it too. But yeah, uh, that's cool. I mean, it's it's um, it's it's basically that Charles Henry is the the little boy in it, and he like you said, he floats, and basically he becomes aware that there are all these kids in school with him, and and just in his neighborhood that basically certain kids who are doing anything outside of the ordinary are basically yeah. reprimanded. And, and there's this little girl who likes to play boy sports mm-hmm. and she has to wear this device to keep her from doing that. And he essentially becomes kind of this uh, leader of the rebellion, I guess, for basically saying no to society and being himself. And yeah. that's, that's kind of, that's a cool concept. And I think it, what's weird is, um, I don't even think I was that conscious of it at the time, but when I was growing up, I I didn't know this until I was much out of until I was out of school. But I I'm a hyper visual learner, so any of my teachers that weren't using visual components to their lectures or or anything. Um, I had an extremely difficult time learning from them. And so when I was in school, my teachers and thus my parents, when I was really young, basically said, there's something wrong with RJ. He's not able to retain things. And I would study super hard. And then, I mean, maybe I wasn't actually studying hard. I don't know, but (laughs) I, I I thought it was trying really hard. And then I, I, the results weren't coming. And so there was a, uh, there was a period in my life where I got diagnosed with ADD and, you know, my parents experimented with, uh, at the time, it was very in vogue to ha- put your kids on Ritalin or yeah, Adderall or whatever. Yeah, I was just and, about that. and there was a short window of time where I was on those drugs. And so I think I was, there There was this period in my life where I was really confused about why can't I, you know, my neighbors who sit next to me in school can put their head down and learn these math equations and then get good grades in these tests. And it just wasn't connecting for me. Yeah. And so... Falling up is very much, uh, I think, a story that came from the place of society has this way of trying to put people in categorical boxes and Mm -hmm. and tell them like, oh, you're this and you're that and you have ADD and that's why you're this way or, you know, and I think um, once I got to a certain age and realized that it wasn't anything that insane. I literally just was an extremely visual person and I didn't, ha- I had certain subjects where I was being taught in a way that was non-visual. Yeah. And all, that's all their this, fault. <laughs> yeah. My entire identity up until that point, I was defining myself as like, Oh, I'm this guy that can't focus. And, and because these are the things I was being told as yeah. a kid. Um, and so I, I, yeah, that's really, I'm going on a tangent, but that was really, no, what I that, mean, that it also comes back about. to like, who said that as a kid, you don't have an interesting story to tell. I mean, totally. And uh, that's cool. Um, and and so so a lot of commercials that are on your website you've done, you've done after um, after Everdream was closed down. Almost all of them, yeah. And so at some point, are you still doing commercials? By the way, nowadays, yeah, or I am. I I do. The thing is, basically, I kind of ejected in just I'm always doing things all or nothing, and I think in a foolish way, me making a decision to put all my time and effort into narrative was less about me stopping doing commercials for a period of time and more about me kind of staking a identity 
it, for my own identity, it was like, I'm going to be a narrative filmmaker. What I foolishly yeah. did is I disconnected from my income source. You know, mm -hmm. I was doing commercials. And so as a result of that, um, I kind of cut off my nose to spite my face, I guess. <laughs> but I have now, um, I've slowly started to, because I still have relationships with a lot of creative directors and different brands and stuff. And, yeah. um, basically when the commercial comes through the pipeline and people reach out to me, if the project seems like it's going to be something where I can find a creative in, I typically will do it if it fits into my schedule and you know, if, if the price is right and right. all, all of that good stuff. But luckily right now on the horizon, uh, for 2020, I'm pretty much, uh, going all in on, on narrative projects. I, I just attached to, um, a feature film that has uh, like the budgets in place, everything's in place. It's essentially, I have like, uh, a limited time to work with the writer to do a director's pass. And then depending on if the financiers like my, my take on, on the movie, it will be put into production next summer. Oh, that's great. Is that your idea that, uh, it's, it's not, it's or? actually a script that got sent to me and it was already financed and nice. they were just looking for a director, but they, it was financed and looking for a director knowing that they wanted a director to come in and take it. Yeah. And like uh, it, develop it. Yeah. yeah. And so I got sent that script, um, by my old manager, Adam Engelhard, who's just always been such a huge champion for me and thought I would like the script and respond to it. And I did. And yeah. it's, it's this really cool concept. It's kind of like if thoroughbreds, uh, was all in a house similar to rear window or disturbia. Hmm. Um, it's called adolescent behavior and, it's a cool, it's a really cool script and I'm excited about developing that. And then there's also Steven and I, who is the co-creator of Simi Valley, um, him and I are doing a, another digital series. I don't really think I can say too much about specifically who it's with or whatever, but the, it's essentially with a big YouTuber and the whole model is the first episode lives on YouTube and you're not the YouTubers fan base isn't really completely aware at first that they're actually watching a narrative. Oh, I see. It's interesting. The oh. YouTuber, the, the medium of the YouTubers world starts to slowly devolve mm -hmm. into what the viewers will slowly become consciously aware of as a scripted narrative. And then when that at first episode ends, the second and third episode end up living on a big streaming platform. And so they're, okay. what they're doing is they're basically transplanting a YouTuber's audience to a streaming platform. And um, as a result of the fact that this is a really new idea, they, similar to the Black Pills thing, people like Steven and myself, because we made Simi Valley, kind of got to go in and pitch. And they really liked our take on this, one of these sci-fi shows. And uh, so that's probably going to be the, the biggest thing I, well, aside from if the feature happens, but that's right. like, that's greenlit, that's moving forward. We just turned in the first draft. We have, uh, you know, shoot dates next year that we're working towards. That's awesome. And so the short, um, Fa uh, back, um, 
Falling up, falling up. Yeah, yeah. No, not falling up. The, uh, the oh, ready or not? Sorry, ready or not. not? Yeah, uh, I know. This is like I feel like I'm just all over the place and manic. I should have had a, a whiteboard with bullet points <laughs> or something. I mean, you got so many things going on; it's uh, hard to, to to follow. Um, but that's kind of where the question comes from. So, the, the short was something you've developed now recently, or is it something that has already been kind of in the works for a while? Yeah. So, uh, to circle back. John Tree Fry, the producer and founder of 4WT Media, who's done a bunch of shorts and has turned, been able to turn those shorts into kind of springboards for young filmmakers and also set some of those up as features. Him and I linked on another short that was that's called Remote Glove. He, we basically decided together that it was going to be too expensive to make as yeah. a short. And so he said, look, can you come up with another idea that um, we can make for cheaper? And and we'll put up some of the money and we'll find a way to, to raise the money or whatever. So I went off, this was at the tail end of last year mm -hmm. when John and I had this conversation and I was really struggling with my grandmother who had, had passed away. Oh. And as a, in a weird way, my imagination, my coping process was, was really weird. I had this recurring dream where I would go back in time to one of these very vivid specific moments that I wished I had gotten to spend with my grandma. Yeah. And at first it, the dream was just this beautiful thing. I got to go spend time with my grandma and I'd wake up and be like, wow, I miss my grandma. That was so cool that I got to live that out in this fantasy. Yeah. But as the dream continued to, as I continued to have it more often, the moment would pass and then I would be stuck in that timeline and basically that period of time. And I started to really, w upon waking up, I started to really struggle with the real life implications of if I could go back in time to one of these moments to see my grandma. Knowing what you know. But I had to risk everything in the oh, present and I would be stuck yeah. in that past. Would I take that ch chance mm. basically? And all of a sudden there became these, these very, uh, I think, narrative uh, engine it, all of a sudden there was a conflict that seemed so well suited to a narrative yeah and so ready or not was basically born although obviously it doesn't deal with a grandmother and me the story is is very different um it's heavily inspired by me kind of coping through the passing of my grandma and it was a in a weird way, I've never quite had a, a film that was almost as, as therapeutic as this yeah. because the writing process of it was bringing me peace because I was really living out a, a fantasy. And I said it earlier, but the, so the, the short ready or not is about this 15 year old girl, Lily, her father passes away when she's 10 years old, literally in the time machine going back to get their mother. And she spends the next almost five years completing his time machine. Which, Try to prevent him from going in for the, in the exactly. first Exactly. Yeah. And she's going to go back in time and prevent his death. But as with all great narratives, there's, there's a catch. Everything she sends back in time only exists for 48 seconds before it disappears. And she's not sure where that where it goes after 48 seconds mm. and her window when the short when we pick up on the short her her window is completely closed basically like yeah. she can only go back so far and she's got a few days left to be able to go back within time to prevent her dad oh, from I that see. fateful day oh that's cool so there's like a time limit to to her being able to go exactly yeah so she gets into that time machine knowing that 
that's that something it could be the end of her life yeah, basically it could be. but then uh, at least the younger version of her in that timeline will grow up with her dad so there's yeah. this really weird i guess not weird is the right word but there's these really i guess real life implications I, because i think most of the time travel movies i've seen or the ways i've seen time travel explored with the exception of a few things like primer and ha have really always been using time travel as an element to tell a, you know, like looper, like time travel in which they're all amazing, but I haven't really seen time travel specifically used as a real life implication of what the actual stakes would be for you to get into that machine, go back in time and potentially like back to the future had some of that, but back to the future isn't really dealing with multiple timelines right. of, yeah. of like the younger version of yourself and how that, if you went back in time, if you died, if you sacrificed your life, but for the younger version of yourself that then got to grow up with. Yeah. I think there's just these things that if you and I literally had a time machine in this room right now, I think uh, what we would use it butterfly for. Butterfly effect did a little bit of like, mm. you know, the alternate timelines and how, you know, changing something in the past would change the present in a, yeah. in a weird way. But yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I always thought I always wanted to do something with time travel too. I mean, I'm a big sci-fi fan and a big, uh, I thought Looper did a good job. Have you seen Primer? Yeah. Primer's yeah. great. Primer blew my mind when I saw that movie. Yeah, I I once actually I, I feel like I had to go to the Wikipedia like page of Primer and like read everything to uh, to finally understand what the hell happens in that film in terms yeah. of like you know the logic of what. It's happens. so scientific that I think it it it's for the people who really take the time to dive into it. It's amazing. Yeah, but um, it's like but it's it, not accessible to. It's, most it people. alienates a lot of its audiences yeah. though. Um, um, but but so yeah, that's what Ready or Not's about and. Uh, just to reiterate, we have 10 days left in our Kickstarter campaign. Um, you can check it out. Just go to Kickstarter, type in Ready or Not. Um, and yeah. We're and what's happening once the campaign is over uh, in terms of like, you know, assuming you get, you reach the goal, yep. when are you planning on shooting it? Um, so we, the campaign ends literally on Christmas Eve and like 10 a.m. in the morning, Christmas Eve. And just to plug, there's some really cool rewards. There's a filmmaker, a short film workshop with John, the producer, uh, where he's taking everyone through exactly how to set up their short and go from short to feature. And uh, Bash is doing, um, my manager is doing a workshop on like how to get reps. And once you have reps, how to utilize them better. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of specifically filmmaker and actor geared rewards. But so... To answer your question, um, so I'm not just doing an infomercial this whole time, <laughs> yeah. is uh, the plan is raise the money, hit the goal right before the new year, um, and then start pre-production in January, which basically is a combination of casting. There's a couple actually, specifically for the role of Lily's dad, George, there's some big name actors that um, we have access to that oh, nice. we think will will be interested in, in, in playing the role. And then it's about, okay, great. Once we cast that person, casting the family around that person, which will probably take us a decent amount, you know, a month, month and a half with these yeah. bigger names to actually get the deals closed. And then uh, February and March would be tangible pre-production locations, prep, storyboards, all that great stuff. And then in April, we would shoot. And the plan would be to basically have the film posted and ready for the whole festival wave that basically starts to come in kind of like end of summer. Gotcha. Um, 
That's great. I mean, that's uh, one thing I, I think in my short I didn't have is like a, a clear sort of festival plan. Even though when I did the yeah. short, when we did the short. You're talking about Face Swap. Face Swap, yeah. Okay, yes. When we did it, Which we I just watched and we should talk about because <laughs> it's super well done and, and people should go check it out. Uh, well, I mean, I, I keep plugging it in the podcast. I have <laughs> an episode for it. So, you know, it's, it's, cool. not, it's not crucial. Um, but, um, but it's really... I think it's very smart to have like a, a plan of what to do with the short after. My, yeah. Our plan was just to put it online and expect it to go viral. And, yeah, yeah. and it, you know, it, it, it did, it hit some waves and it got into some, uh, you know, we did some conscious kind of pushing it into certain uh, uh, channels, you know, sci-fi channels and things like that. Which your, your short and, would have also crushed it in festivals because it's so short. So it would have been programmers love five, six, seven minute shorts that they can... And and it has gotten into a lot of uh, mainly genre film, film festivals. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was not that was kind of surprising to be honest. I, when I when when we kind of wrote it, it was actually my wife was my my girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. um, was kind of pushing to make it a, a, a festival piece. Yeah, and I was pushing to make it like a, a short internet sort of uh, you know. Uh, bite-sized kind of snack yeah we constantly like kind of clashed and i feel like the the result was sort of somewhere in the middle she was right and you were wrong (laughs) i think we both that's my experience with my girlfriend most of the time (laughs) she always is right of course yeah yeah (laughs) uh but there's no doubt about that but i think like the result was that it was kind of it did both and maybe you know maybe it would have done both regardless but uh, but at least the release strategy was like we put it online and then we submit it to festival now obviously some festivals were like no it's already online we can't uh, we can't program it the thing that's really interesting about what you're saying is my instinct personally and I always do things too quickly um, I often I'm very impatient and my also instinct was like let's make the short and just put it online because the only thing that really matters is short of the week and video yeah. staff pick and the, these these are kind of uh, from the managers and agents that I've talked to and and also my own nothing really starts to matter until it gets to that level where execs are viewing it on the internet yeah but the thing that I've learned from John and and other producers and people that I've talked to is the festival circuit is really important to generating the buzz before it goes online that, um, and, and kind of having a couple of those big, the South by Southwest and the Tribeca's. And if you get into one of those festivals, then when the online release comes, not only do the people who run those platforms really want to feature the film even more, but the town is more interested in it because it has those accreditations and right. Um, that's uh, that's something I didn't really account for. So you, with your kind of like your release plan, is to release it like just in time for this for the festival window, which yep. is like towards the end of the year, I assume. Yeah, and the the, the uh, other thing we did too, which I don't know, not everyone can do this. I was very lucky because I have access to my my manager and uh, my agent, but we actually took early. I can't know if it, I can't remember if it was an early draft of the script or if it was just a pitch of, of ready or not. And we also did this with the previous short remote glove where we actually sent it to creative execs around town who work at companies that are often acquiring shorts and then oh. turning them into features and said, Hey, like, what do you think of this and getting feedback from them? And it did two things. It kind of got, these execs at these different companies around town that buy these shorts 
to engage with our short before it even comes out. So yeah. once it does come out, they're already kind of like, oh, they took some of my feedback. They, they were yeah. kind of already a collaborator in it. That's great. Get him, get him involved. And, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. But, but also it just exposed me to some of the way, the ways that they're thinking about things. Cause right. some of their feedback was really interesting to me and unexpected as like, oh, that's what they're looking for huh. in the shorts that they're buying. They're not so much looking for. What was uh, what was some of the surprises like? What what did you kind of not expect? I think there was uh, two one? there was two things that happened. One of the execs came back with some with a note that was just a blanket note that said something along the lines of, um, "This was good and that was good, but primarily here's what I think is the most important: is when I watch a short, I'm not looking for anything more than a complete thought." from the filmmaker. Mm. So I'm really just looking for one complete thought on some theme or topic or, or thing that the short is dealing with. And yeah. I thought that that was it, it. When I was writing ready or not, my thinking that always came back into my, my mind of, am I completing the thought that I'm trying to have yeah. with share with the audience? And so the short very much ends in a way that, completes the thought, but then also sets up a cliffhanger for a feature right? without disrupting the, the definitiveness of what I'm trying to say. And, uh, the second thing that I was really, um, I wasn't expecting is the kind of simplicity at which a lot of these execs desired from the shorts. They almost wanted them to be less films and more purely proof of concepts. Mm. And w upon a little bit more investigation, the thing that became apparent to me was it was because of the nature of how these execs are getting things sold through. They're taking something that they see up the food chain yeah. to their bosses. And when they show it to their boss or when they pitch it to their boss, they don't want to be caught up in a ton of plot and right. and they just want to literally be able to give them a taste. And so if the, the closer that the short can be that very concise taste of what's more to come, the better. Interesting. And, um, but that kind of goes against what you would expect for festivals. Like, I know. Cause that's know. sort of, so those two can don't have to, but they in, in a way might contradict with each other. Cause I find a lot of festival films lack in that exact respect. Well, They're, I think with most Hollywood feedback, it's extremely contradictory, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, it's not contradictory. It's just you realize you're making something that needs to accomplish more than one thing. It, on one mm -hmm. hand, it needs to it needs to cater to the test of festivals, and and those people, they want something that's more that kind of grabs you in and yeah. can take its time. They're used to like you know people sitting in a in a in a dark theater watching them. You know, sort of a captivated audience or captive audience, I would say. Yeah. Uh, whereas you know the the executives that you're, you're mentioning are are trying to find exactly the audience, the, the opposite, because they don't want, when they try to sell it up the food chain, to get their higher up, to like be bogged down. Like, you exactly. Know, they, they give it, they're saying at the end of the day, and the guy, you know, is like, all, all they can think of is going home. He's not gonna like want to sit through, uh, you know, someone's passion, you know. Like yeah, they almost, they almost want to watch like a commercial yeah. for the, the idea. Get to the point and, kind of thing, right. And also, I think the other thing too that's super apparent, I mean, we were talking about West Ball earlier because you had him on the podcast and I was a huge fan of Ruin, but I think what West Ball did with Ruin right. or what 
for instance, Dan Trachenberg did with The Portal Short. The I don't Portal, know if you're familiar. Right. Of course, but, yeah. But I think what both of those short films taught me, and this is purely my own perspective, is not only were those, for instance, Ruin is basically a set piece. Yeah. Like there's an opening and then instantly into the action. And I think what Ruin was, was almost more of a giant commercial for West Ball saying like, I am a very talented filmmaker an action director <laughs> yeah and if you can, can if you hire me i can do this at scale yeah because he's doing this for nothing on his own time and i think oh yeah with dan trachenberg too portal i mean he's talked about it on different interviews and stuff where he's like look i put my life savings into that short and that short was definitely an amazing short and especially for the fans of the game right but i think for hollywood and for the execs around town that short was almost more of an advertisement for dan trachenberg as a director yeah and, and a writer like look at what this kid did with maybe 30 40 50 grand yeah. and these execs who are sitting on multi-million dollar movie budgets who don't have a director are like well wait a second what if we just hired dan to do 10 cloverfield lane he would right. probably crush that mm -hmm. um which he did and yeah, he did uh, a great job i actually just got introduced to him i mean i remember i remember portal and i watched uh, 10 cloverfield lane not realizing it's the same guy uh oh wow and, that's cool uh, later on i was like oh man that makes sense i mean it's uh that's really great. I should have him on a podcast too. If you know him, give me his. Uh, I don't. I don't. But I'm. Uh, I'm probably. Um, I. I reached out to him one time to no avail. I'll ask um, him for five minutes of his time, and I'm sure it's work. <laughs> yeah, you probably will get him. I, I mean, yeah. I know he lives in LA, and he's. Um, he also just directed the the pilot of The Boys, and. Oh, he did. I didn't realize that. He's doing really cool stuff. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so. Everything we just discussed, I mean, Portal and uh, and uh, Ruin, even though Ruin was, I mean, obviously, I, I you know, have an entire episode with uh, Wes Ball and Ruin yeah, is a big yeah. part of it, uh, but I usually put uh, those kind of links to them or even uh, mm -hmm. have them uh, embedded in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and I think there's so much more I want to ask you, and there's a lot of, like, kind of intermittent detail that yeah. I'd love to, to dive into. But I think, you know, for this episode, we can always do another one. Yeah, I would love to. This episode wrap, wraps it up nice. Um, I'm going to release it probably really quick cool. so that it still yeah, know, yeah. gets the out there before is still the, in the Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, any, any thing, any website or anything like that you want to uh, plug or you know make sure people go and check out? Besides, obviously, the, the Kickstarter campaign, there's going to be a link to it, but you can also um, mention it here again. Where, where do people find it? Uh, yeah, on for Kickstarter? sure. I think there's a few things that actually, <laughs> yeah, Kickstarter, you can find it. It's called Ready or Not. Um, it's the only Ready or Not that exists on, on Kickstarter. And obviously, I'm RJ Collins, so the film is tied to me as a creator on that platform. Um, I also, which is, you know, there's 10 days left, so this comes out, there'll probably be eight days or something. We're trying to raise right. $25,000, which we're almost halfway there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and yeah, go, uh, you know, donate or share, or even just if you want to engage with me, you can also find me on Instagram at rj.collins, uh, Twitter, rjcollins1, which is also Facebook. Um, and I think in, in the spirit of everything we were talking about, um, you know, about being able to reach, reach people and get help from people and access them, I think even beyond the Kickstarter campaign, if there's any 
filmmakers or, or beyond or whatever out there that have any question they want to ask me or anything, I'll definitely pay it forward and be as uh, available for those five to 15 minute coffee sessions awesome. as, as possible. Um, that's something that, uh, I think no other guest has offered. So oh, far. Yeah. Like that's, uh, that's awesome. So guys, uh, whoever, whoever's <laughs> well, listening to it, uh, get, get on it. I kind of, uh, as a result of, of reaching out to many Chapman alumni recently, when the Kickstarter launched and stuff and kind of reconnecting with them and just being available to give advice and stuff. I just realized I was not that long ago on the other side of that table. Right. And, um, the people that actually gave me even 10 or 15 minutes of their time made a massive impact. And even one inkling of information they shared with me could have hugely changed the trajectory of my strategy creatively or personally or whatever. So I also want to I yeah, get a lot of fulfillment out of out of those experiences. Yeah, and sometimes you someone comes to you with a with like a, you know wanting to consult you, and they end up you know providing uh, you know uh, opportunities that you didn't yeah. realize they might uh, have. And um, my biggest takeaway from this uh, conversation we had was uh, that it's really cool how you had this initial success with this kind of uh with this venture that you and your friend put together mm. uh thanks to you know this remarkable kind of coincidence that a sh- that a short spec you did yeah. got you all the attention but um out of this you earned a lot beyond mm. you know experiences as a filmmaker a lot a lot of networking a lot of uh a lot of things and now um as you're sort of you know, we had this existential crisis, you call it, or whatever, yeah. you know, like this identity uh, crisis where you're like, okay, I want to be a filmmaker. That's what yeah. I started this whole thing for. It almost seems like you're starting from scratch, but it's so far mm. from the truth because now, you know, this thing that you're doing now, which a lot of, start, well, you know, up and coming filmmakers do, including myself, um, has this uh, this sort of richness of, of, uh, of, uh, history that you can build upon you know the connections yeah. you have with with uh with the industry and uh and all that even just the the ability to to just take on a commercial gig mm. and uh and you know replenish your supply you know, your, your yeah. resources yeah. a bit uh by doing something that's still being on set still being active yeah. and working with a dp and, and with actors and collaborating and everything um I think that you're doing a great job, even oh, thanks, even man. now, and uh, and it's a remarkable kind of uh, platform that you've built for yourself. Mm. And I wish you success with everything um, that you're doing. And um, yeah, is there any like last minute sort of tip you want to share with with your audience or some kind of a uh, beyond you know offering them 15 minutes of your time? Yeah, which I think yeah. is probably the best uh, <laughs> the best advice. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know, man. I, I've just, again, I feel uh, super grateful that this, I, I guess the tip I can, I, I can add, which is v- can fold so perfectly into me offering up my time and advice to anyone who, um, desires it is that this whole conversation, you and I linking up, and I'm sure we'll have, a professional and personal relationship beyond this podcast. I'm, I'm suspicious of that because this is how these things go. <laughs> yeah. All resulted from okay. me. And it was that like over Thanksgiving holiday from 10 PM to 2 AM, which was the only time that my family was asleep and I could actually be working on the campaign without <laughs> being made to feel guilty about it. I was on Facebook and Instagram finding people and messaging them about ready or not saying like, Hey, I, I noticed you're a fan of sci-fi. I noticed you're a fan of this. I think you might be a fan of my film. No worries if not. And probably out of 
every hundred, two, three, four hundred messages I sent, three or four people would reply. You right. were one of those people, and you uh, weren't. You were very forthright and said, "Hey." I can't donate to your movie, but I do have this platform and this podcast I could invite you on if you'd be open to it. And I think the cool thing is, uh, the tip I can give to people is, you know, don't be scared to ask people for them to look at your stuff or to become a part of your thing because the people that don't want to aren't going to be offended by you asking. And the people that are friendly enough and thoughtful enough like yourself to say, hey, I actually can't donate to your film, but I could invite you on this podcast are probably going to lead to something way cooler than what I even initially reached out to you. For. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I love that. I think it's a great advice. And my advice to people is also in, in the same token, you know, you be one of those three people out of hundred because <laughs> it's really easy to ignore. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure people don't even realize how many opportunities could just literally la- land on their laps and they just don't pick up the phone because they think that it's, you know, I don't know, totally, something, man. something gets in the way and you never know what, where things are going to lead to. So, yeah. Yeah. We should, that I completely agree. This Kickstarter campaign, uh, and me reaching out, me definitely going out of my comfort zone and reaching out to way more people than I ever would have has also resulted in me connecting in people that have a buddy who I completely didn't even realize I went to film school with works at Panavision and is like, Hey man, I can comp you lenses because we support young film. And there's just all these connections that are way more beneficial to me than what I was even reaching out to them about. And being that person have been friends and I, now I'm reconnecting with them. So yeah, that's perfect. Cool. Thank you so much for being on this episode. That's uh, thank you. I'm going to rush to release it uh, (laughs) when I'm still, when I can still help you with, uh, with uh, this uh, short term goal. Thanks man. Uh, I appreciate it. All right. And that was it, episode 24 of the Post Post Podcast with RJ Collins. Stay tuned because tomorrow I'm going to be back with another episode of Colin Levy. He's coming back to talk about Skywatch. Now that the short is released, how is it going? What is his long-term strategy? It's going to be really inspiring. And uh, that's I can't wait to share it with you. And that's it for today. This is David Gidali at the Post Post Podcast. <laughs>